0: Good morning. It is really great to be here. And um, Paul said somewhere that he uh, approached a situation with fear and trepidation. I kind of fear and trembling. I think I I know what that feels like uh, to step before you. And I don't presume to be anyone special, but I I am looking forward to being with you over the next few weeks or months as it be uh, until the new pastor is in place, whoever that is. I also know that I'm following pretty tough act in John Mark Clifton uh and and Dan. Dan is really I've watched him grow. I've watched some of your uh uh sermons online and and he has truly grown in his preaching and uh, appreciate Dan and the elders. You know there's a lot that falls to them and especially the guy who's here through the week uh, in the absence of a pastor and uh I've done six interim pastorates in the seven years I've been here as Associate Director of Mission. So I kind of know what that's like. And I, and I have a tender place in my heart for you all, too, because I know interim times between pastors are tough. And I know the circumstances here, and I know that God's grace is sufficient, and He is able, and, and I believe your best days are ahead, and we need to be looking upward and forward and not backward and down, because God has great plans for this church, and I know that you're going to do great things together. For the lord in this community and so i'm excited to be here Um, i um have been in ministry i was ordained in 1985 in joplin missouri just wanted to give you just a little background like who is this guy in front of us you know is he a new yorker or whatever no no i'm i am a a redneck country missouri boy who somehow god decided to be in his sense of humor fun to bring him to the city uh, I was born here in Kansas City down by the World War One Memorial. There used to be a hospital called St. Mary's, but not long after that, my dad got his first teaching job in southwest Missouri, so at two years old, we moved down there in the hills and hollers of the Ozarks, and I grew up uh, outside of Granby on Shoal Creek, and so uh, they didn't have video games or cell phones, so... When I got home, I made a peanut butter jelly sandwich. I grabbed my twenty two My German shepherd came with me. We went down to the creek that was at the end of our property and I shot snakes and turtles and and blackbirds so just a just a little self disclosure uh, uh, had cattle. My mom liked to put in an acre and a half garden with one hundred and thirty six tomato plants and I had my watermelon plant, my watermelon crop and Anyway, so I'm, I'm kind of from rural America. My mom and dad, they were born on the farm up on the Iowa line just inside of Missouri in Worth County, so somehow God has just kind of kept me in a, in a small sphere, in a small orbit, and I haven't been able to escape the gravitational pull of Missouri. But uh, I was ordained in 85, as I said. I've, I served in some kind of local church pastoral ministry from 85 until I came up here in 2013. I think that's 28 years and like I said, I've done six interims since I've been here because I didn't want to get too far from the local church and where God's people live, work, and do life together, right? And so it's just it's an honor to be here with you. And uh, we'll get to know each other a little better uh, over time, and I'll get to know your names and, and as you feel led and want to, some of your stories and things going on in your life because I want to know, and I do have a pastor's heart. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at this gospel. Probably what I'll do is we'll kind of walk through it, and then I'll take a break from it from time to time, and then I may get called away to attend to some kind of associational business, in which case Dan will be uh, filling the pulpit in my place. I think that's healthy anyway. But I'm going to start in in the gospel of Mark. And it says right there at the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we call it the gospel of Mark, don't we? And we talk about the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of John. But they knew, and we know, it's really the gospel about Jesus Christ, according to Mark or John or Matthew. We know that Mark was... A nephew to Barnabas, the encourager who went on a missionary journey with Paul's missionary first missionary journey. We know that. Uh, we know that Mark was a convert and a disciple of the Apostle Peter. And so when we read the gospel, we know we're getting a firsthand account of the life and the ministry of Jesus. It gives us this beautiful snapshot of the life and the work and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Something that I think is significant about mark 's Gospel, and uh, maybe you've noticed this as you as you look at it, is that a third of it is devoted to the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ it's devoted to the to the last week of jesus' life, six chapters of these sixteen from chapter eleven on are devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. And there's a couple reason I think that's important. First of all, let's, let me just, if I can be a little devotional, little chicken soup for the soul. <laughs> not the exegetical, not the expository meaning, but as I think about this, I, it, it kind of makes me think about us. You know, Sometimes we feel like, you know, we just don't matter to God and we don't really have a part in his big plan. Maybe we're an older saint, we're maybe in the last third of our life. We don't feel like he's doing much or we're able to do much. And I just want to say, if Mark devoted a third of his gospel six chapters to the last week of Jesus' life, I think we need to be careful that we finish out this life, that we persevere to the end as God's saints, however long that is. And we, none of us know how many years we have, do we? We've seen some of our friends and our family and our loved ones go home well before their time. But we know some of them live more life in twenty or thirty or forty years than some people live in eighty, because they devoted that life fully and unreservedly to the Lord. You know, when I think about life, and you know, I look at the scriptures, I realize the fact that that Noah was five hundred years old when God came to him and said, I want you to build a boat. 500 years old. Moses was 80 when God came to him on the backside of the the desert in a burning bush and said, Moses, you're the guy. I'm calling you to go for me and to be the one who brings my, my people out of Egyptian slavery. Abraham was 75 when God promised to give him that first promised son and he was 100 when that son was born. You see, I think sometimes we take for granted that the last days of our lives may be the most effective and the most productive for the kingdom. If you're a Royals fan, you remember a few years ago that we thought we were down and out. and A lot of people went home early and the Royals came back in the ninth inning and went into extra innings and went on to the World Series, right? A lot of people wish they hadn't gone home early that night. And then some of you happen to be Chiefs fans, okay? (laughs) All right. I like to relive that. (laughs) I will mention the Chiefs from time to time. I was seven the first time they won the Super Bowl. I'm dating myself now. So, yes, I'm 57. But we knew to watch that Chiefs game all the way to the end because which quarter is the most important quarter for the Chiefs and really for any football team? The fourth quarter. It's not over till it's over. And some of you may be to a point in your life you feel like, you know, you just, you know, God has shelved you and, and maybe you've done something, you know, feel worthy. I'm just, I'm just saying there's, there's two good times to plant an oak tree, 30 years ago and today, right? So don't underestimate the last portion of your life. And even in death, as you think about how you might set up your trust and so forth to have an ongoing legacy that serves the kingdom, you know, Hebrew says, uh, and though dead yet speaketh, right? Through our, through our legacy, through our will, through our trust, through the way we leave our assets to the kingdom, we can even, uh, even when we're dead, we still speaketh, we're still serving but really, the more exegetical reason, the reason I think it's important to Mark that the last six chapters are devoted is because Peter, or Mark understood that Jesus, that the truth and the message of Jesus being crucified, buried, and raised again is the essence of what it takes for someone to be saved. That's the message they have to hear, right? And we say faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be There is a message that has to be heard. There's a message that we must tell. There's a message that people need to hear about. And I, and I, and I think that even the Apostle Paul kind of learned this message the hard way. You remember there in Acts chapter 17, it records one of his most phenomenal sermons, one of the most phenomenal messages ever given, a, a, an incredible apologetic defense of the gospel in the front of the most un, you know, religious. well, maybe not unreligious, but at least unbelieving type of people steeped in Greek mythology and Greek gods and goddesses. And I think he kind of learned this lesson the hard way because he had some time in Athens. He was hanging out there, and while he was, he was, he was even sharing and striking up conversations in the, in, the, in the local mall, the shopping center that's called the Agora in Greek. That was kind of their shopping area. But then he got an invitation by the Areopagus to address them with this strange new doctrine called the resurrection. And so, this rocky outcropping, if you go back, that rocky outcropping is called the Acropolis, or the Areopagus. And um, it's a little confusing, because the Areopagus is this hill, which is the Mount of Ares, or the Areopagus, but it's also kind of the ruling uh, Supreme Court that sat in judgment of all new ideas, philosophical, religious, intellectual and otherwise. And so it was like this ruling body of, of, you know, intellectual elites and spiritual elites who invited Paul to see them. So we really don't know where this happened, but then in the next picture, uh, that is a little Northwest of this. This is the Acropolis where the Parthenon sits. And I always kind of imagine Paul being there, uh, you know, in those columns, but we don't know that, but, uh, that's the Acropolis. And then a little ways Northwest is the Areopagus that I just pointed out. But, uh, If you want to see a life-size depiction of that, you can go to Nashville, Tennessee. You've probably seen it if you go a little ways from Vanderbilt University. There's a life-size, actual-to-scale Parthenon that you can go see. But nonetheless, Paul is invited by this ruling you know, intelligentsia to come and share this new doctrine of the resurrection. And he goes and he delivers this fabulous message. You can read it in Acts 17 this afternoon. And it's phenomenal. But not much happened. Not much response. Not very many people got saved. And I think he kind of left Athens and went to Corinth with his tail between his legs and kind of rethinking what happened there because he thought, you know, if I just learn the, the Greek philosophers, if I can quote their philosophers, and if I can, you know, tell them about this, you know, you even have a, uh, an idol to the unknown God, and I can tell you who that unknown God is, it's Jesus Christ. And he waxed eloquent, and there wasn't much response. And maybe that's because he was just planting seeds amongst, among a very pagan group of people who were a long way from the gospel, and I get that. But by the time he gets to Corinth, he has kind of changed his tune, and he's saying things a little differently. He's saying things like, When I was among you, I determined to preach nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Think about that. And that it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And so I think he's come to the realization that Mark did that it's the simple gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified that makes all the difference. And so Mark devotes that last part of his gospel to, uh, from the time of Jesus' triumphal entry, the Sunday before his resurrection, to that Thursday night that he institutes the Lord's Supper among his disciples, to the arrest and the mock trial that happened through the wee hours of Friday morning, And to the crucifixion, his vicarious sacrificial sacrifice and death on the cross for us through Friday from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., and then to his resurrection, his glorious triumphant resurrection on that first Easter Sunday morning. And that's what he devotes that to. Well, come back to your passage with me. I want to introduce another character beginning in verse 2 and listen and see if you can tell who this is, all right? If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. I think I've got it up behind me too. But in verse 2 and 3, it says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now what's really cool, when you begin to study the Bible, you realize right away that the Old Testament, thousands of years before Christ's birth, begins to foretell the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, doesn't it? Everything from Genesis and that proto-evangelism to Malachi, you know, out of the Bethlehem, one will come who will be ruler over Israel, etc. And Isaiah, 700 years before, it's talking about a virgin will conceive and bear a child and you'll call his name Emmanuel, and we could go on and on. But what's really cool is there's another character that the prophets foretell, and especially Isaiah and Malachi, and guess who it is? John the Baptist. He was that one who was sent to prepare the way of the Savior, to open up people's hearts and to be prepared for meeting him. John the Baptist was seen as a type of Elijah appearing suddenly in the desert preparing people's hearts for the coming salvation. John was from the great tradition of prophets who came out of the desert. It seems like those men who God called to speak for him and on his behalf found that they they found their spiritual preparation and their spiritual purification in the wilderness, in the desert. People like Elijah, Elisha, Moses, Jesus, Paul, John the Baptist all spent time in the desert before their public ministries. I think that's significant. John was ultimately beheaded, For daring to speak against uh, King Herod's adulterous relationship with his brother's wife, but not before he completed his mission, right? Not before he prepared the hearts of the people to receive the Messiah, Jesus, who was soon to come. And so we see this one who fulfilled his purpose, he fulfilled his mission. And if you follow along, listen to the description. I want you to hear what's going on around the time of John the Baptist. I want you to hear a description of this person. And what's going on as he is preaching out there by the Jordan River? First verse four, following along with me. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair. And he wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying after me, One is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I love that. I mean, the picture I get of John the Baptist is... This, this guy who had one single passion and devotion, and that was to make Christ known. His diet was simple from the earth. His clothing was plain and rugged, just a leather, you know, a leather type of garment. He didn't get all caught up in the trappings of, um, of this world. He didn't let it go to his head when all the crowds came out to hear him. He maintained his humility he kept focused on his mission, on his purpose, which was to make Christ known to prepare, prepare people's hearts for the coming of this Messiah. And you know, when I think about my life as a believer and the people that have influenced me the most and made the biggest impact and impression upon me, they're people like John the Baptist, frankly. Just a simple, single-minded devotion, a simple life. They, didn't, they don't get caught up in the trappings of, you know, material things and affluence. And you know what? I have, to, I have to confess, you know, sometimes I do. He didn't care, you know, when he went out the door, if he, you know, looked like a GQ guy. He just was a simple man from the wilderness that God had called and sent and sent out into that wilderness to preach a gospel and to prepare people's hearts for the coming of their Savior. Think about some of the people in your life that have made the biggest impact. Let me share one who's impacted me in my life. He's a guy named Lyndell Sconce. Anybody ever heard of him? Lindell Sconce and I went to seminary together back in the late 80s. We drove a school bus together as a lot of seminary students did. Got to know him pretty well and got introduced to his ministry. Lindell's story was that he had gone to Raleigh in a school of engineering. He had got a degree, a bachelor's in chemical engineering. Uh, he was being sought by a lot of top companies. Even in that day, in the late '80s, he probably would have been able to go out and get what we would consider a six-figure salary today. I'm sure, his parents were very proud of him, but he found himself on a mission trip, and through that, God wonderfully, amazingly called him to the gospel ministry. And he knew that he had to give up the trade that he had chosen. He found himself at Midwestern Seminary, and what he felt a special calling as God began to develop his ministry, it was to the Vietnamese people. There were a lot of Vietnamese immigrants coming into Kansas City at that time. I don't know what was going on in Vietnam at that time, but they were settling there along Independence Avenue, just northeast of the downtown. You know where that area is, right down there just south of the river where, um, you know, where 29 comes across the river just south there and he took me and he showed me his ministry. It was amazing. And what he would do is he learned the language, taught himself Vietnamese. He moved down into a little cracker box, cockroach infested 500 square foot apartment that probably cost in today's money, six, 700 a month, probably back then a hundred or 200 a month. He drove an old beat-up Chevy C10, whatever, 1500 pickup that the side beds were about to fall off from rust and kept it hung together with baling wire. Some of you have had a truck like that, haven't you? And he would go out to the airport, he would pick up these Vietnamese people, he would help them find a place to live, he would teach them English, teach them to drive, show them how to, how to get a, you know, a job fell out a job application. He probably filled out a lot of them for them because they are hardworking, industrious people. You just turn them loose, they'll be okay, but they need some help. And as he was doing all of this and helping them get settled, he was also sharing the gospel with them and before long he had the nucleus and he began the first Vietnamese Baptist church in Kansas City that I know of. And to this day, he is still the pastor of that church he met a woman in that church named Truc, a Vietnamese woman, and married her and had four children, maybe five. He stayed, uh, once he quit driving a bus, he stayed a custodian at North Kansas City Schools and bivocationally pastored this church for years and still lives down on Skerritt, Starett, Skerritt, Skerritt, around St. John, north of Independence Avenue. Some of you are familiar with that area in the, in the historic northeast. He still lives there. Nobody is ever going to know the name of Lyndall Sconce. He's never going to be famous. He's not going to be on the preaching circuit. They're not going to have him preach at the Southern Baptist Convention. But in my estimation, he is a hero among the faithful. And the simplicity of his life, his dedication to serve the least of these, and to just live at a minimalist level has over the years impressed me more than anybody. And that's what I see in John the Baptist. People from all over Israel heard about the fiery preacher out at the Jordan River. John was preaching a gospel of repentance and baptizing those who repented in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Now let's take a little parenthetical aside here, and just so we're all clear. When we talk about John the Baptist, we don't mean John the Apostle, do we? John the Apostle was one of the original 12, called by Jesus. He was the beloved disciple. John the Beloved. John the Apostle is the one who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the Revelation. Okay? John the Baptist, on the other hand, was Jesus' cousin, the uh, son of uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, the one who leapt in Elizabeth's womb when she met Mary who was pregnant with, with the Jesus. That's John the Baptist. Um, sometimes people think that we are called Baptist because of either the beloved disciple John or John the Baptist because we baptize people. No, we're not called Baptist because of John the Baptist, right? You know that. Uh, a quick history... Gutenberg Press gets invented, they start mass producing the Bible, the Bible gets into the hands of the common people, and a revolution, a reformation, a revival across all the European continent breaks out as people studying the Bible realize how far the Catholic Church has drifted into error with their Mariology, and their papal inerrancy, and their indulgences of paying people to get people out of hell into heaven, and those kind of things, and paying for their forgiveness. And they got back to the simple gospel. And as that gospel spread into England, there were a group of people who came to be known as Anabaptists. And Anabaptists, "Anna" simply means re, so it was a re-baptizer. So as these people who had been baptized in the Anglican church, you know, by this time, the Roman Catholics in England had thrown off The papal authority, and they said, "Uh, we're not going to follow the pope. Long live the king. The king is the leader of the church, which that was a biblical mistake too. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, not the pope or the king, right? And so the people in England, they kind of kept the uh, trappings of Catholicism, but threw the pope out and said, long live the king. And that's where you get uh, our Anabaptist our brethren reading the Bible for the first time for themselves and saying, you know what, there's never any instance where an infant is baptized in the New Testament. Baptism is always a believer, someone who has just made a profession of faith. And so we have believer's baptism. That's what we call it. So they begin, these people were getting saved for the first time out of the Anglican church, making a profession of faith and then being rebaptized as adults or youth. And so we got the name Rebaptizers or Anabaptists when we moved to America, just dropped the Anna and we just became Baptists. So that's that. So this is the John the Baptist that we're talking about and not the one that we're named after. But you could tell that John's ministry was anointed and what I love about this is that this is the sense of expectation. You know, there was a buzz, there was a holy buzz, there was something going on and people could sense it in their hearts in the air that god was up to something i think they knew that the time of something big about to happen was was close because they were i mean they were coming from all over israel you know from jerusalem even the religious leaders were going out there to hear this fiery preacher by the jordan river my pastor a few weeks ago was he, he brought up the subject of the 70s jesus movement anybody remember that Well, you're dating yourself if you do. Uh, Around the early 70s, there began to be this just grassroots revival that broke out and spread across America. Probably millions of people got saved. I got saved during that time. But I remember as a kid growing up, and I grew up in this really nominal Methodist church where we recited the Lord's Prayer and had, you know... Uh, responsive readings, and I lit the candle. I sat on this front row right here where you guys sat, and I had a candle hanging over the back of my chair, and I'd light the candle, and then at the end of the service, I'd come up and put the candle out. And um, we would say all the stuff, and the Apostles' Creed, and all, you know, some of that's good. I believe we probably should recite some of those, those old uh, confessions from time to time. But the thing was, I never heard about Jesus, you know, I knew the stories in the Bible. I knew about some guy getting swallowed by a big fish. I heard about a little guy named Zacchaeus, but I really didn't hear that he was radically, amazingly, wonderfully saved when Jesus called him down and went to his house. And um, I had a, a choir leader named Betty Frazier. She was a phenomenal musician, and she had, she had us kids singing like, well, I mean, we had a great children's choir, and she wanted us to hear some good music. So when this Jesus movement swept through, there's all these revivals, there's crusades. I mean, they're renting whole theaters, Dan, filling up whole theaters with thousands of people who come to hear a, an evangelist. Well, Bobby Harrington was the chaplain of Bourbon Street. He appeared on the Merv Griffin Show. He debated Madeline O'Hara, you know, when she wanted to get prayer out of schools and want everything to be atheist. He was the guy. Well, he was a phenomenal preacher, too. And he came to Joplin, Missouri and they came to the Main Street Theater and uh, our Sunday school teacher and choir director took us to hear some good music. Well, I heard more than good music. I heard the gospel. At least for me, it seemed like the first time and I knew it was true to the core of my being. I knew that I knew that I knew I needed this and I gave my life to Christ that night. I think it was a time kind of like this in Jesus' day just before he came. I think there was a sense of great expectation. I think there was a sense that God was up to something. And I I'm wondering if you might be having a sense that God's up to something in your life. I'm wondering if you might be hungering to live out a more authentic version of your faith than you are right now. Well we find a strong clue in how to do that in the life and the ministry of John the Baptist. At the end of the day, what made his life and his ministry so powerful is that he was single-heartedly devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, to making him known, to preaching this gospel of preparation, and, and saying things like, "He must increase, but I must decrease." You know, if you're going to have a more authentic faith, if you're going to live this thing out and it's going to make a difference and it's going to impact the lives of people around you, you're going to have to have the same, the same heart and the same mentality that John the Baptist had. Jesus needs to increase in my life and I need to decrease because what I see when I look around is a lot of people make it about themselves. The great ability we have as fallen human beings is idolatry. We can make even the truth of the gospel about us. And it's not about us. It's about him. And when we figure that out and we start being less concerned about who we are and what people think of us and how popular we are or how fluent we are, whether we're keeping up with the Jones, and we all, the, the, the sooner we forget all that stuff and get back to an essential faith in wanting to know do people know Jesus? The quicker our lives will be significant for the kingdom. I almost entitled this sermon "Stay in Your Lane, Bro." Some of you know I'm referring to the AT and commercial where the kid is getting his first tattoo, and he's really nervous. the The tattoo artist says, "This your first tattoo, kid? Yes." He said, "It's going to turn out okay." You mean it's going to turn out great, don't you? Hey, I'm one of the tattoo artists in the city. The kid says, you mean you're one of the best tattoo artists in the city? And he says something like that. And then he goes back to work and he says, wait, aren't you supposed to trace it first? he says, whoa, stay in your lane, bro. (laughs) Stay in your lane, bro, has come to be kind of a phrase for... We need to know what our role, our function, our purpose, our gifts, our calling, and who we are, and stay in our lane. You don't have to be everything to everyone. You don't have to be a renaissance man. You don't have to be better at everyone else than at everything. You know, that was kind of my thing, young. You know how some people get mature enough, they can throw a game, you know, to a kid, they lose on purpose. I never did that. I was too competitive. I was going to be better than everybody. I was going to beat him. We have a race that's 40 years old playing softball with the youth. You think I held back? It was, it was embarrassing. It took me a long time just to, to stay in my lane and to just be a little more laid back and to let other people shine a little bit, okay? It's a hard lesson, but we need to stay in our lane. John the Baptist learned what his lane was. It was to make Christ known. And that really is our role individually and as a church. And the quicker we figure that out, the quicker this church and the quicker you are going to have an impact for the gospel in this community and the lives of people that know you. That's really my challenge to you this morning. Let's emulate John the Baptist in that sense. He must increase Jesus, we must decrease. Pray with me, if you will. Father, as we come to this time of invitation, we are challenged by the simple, faithful, devoted life of John the Baptist and how he was completely committed to making you known while he himself became less prominent, less popular, less known to the world around him, and he was okay with that. And guess who's a household name today? Jesus and John the Baptist. Father, may we just lay our lives at the foot of the cross today, at this altar if it be necessary. But at least in our hearts, let us just commit that at this point today, from this point forward, that we're going to have a single hearted devotion to you. And we're going to care less about ourselves, less and less, and put the old self to death. That's really what this is about, about you living in and through us and being filled with the Spirit, not about how much of the Holy Spirit we're holding, but about how much of us you possess through your Holy Spirit. Father, have your way in our hearts and lives. If anyone needs to make a public decision, if anyone doesn't know if they have made that personal decision to accept you and to follow you and to give you their life, may they do it this morning. And maybe they haven't been baptized in 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 faith and as a confession of their inward conversion, may they commit to to baptism today. May they come forward and say I need baptism. I need to outwardly profess what's already happened spiritually inwardly. Father, have your way in our hearts and lives. Speak to us in this time. And we ask it in Christ's powerful name. Amen. I'm going to be here. Some of your elders are going to be around. Pastor Dan's just going to share a couple of stanzas of a song. But come if you need to, to share with someone. And also use those... Um, those uh, visitor cards in your bulletin. Maybe you've got a special prayer request or a special need or you want to talk to me or Dan or one of the elders. Fill that thing out. Just fold it up. Put your name and email address or cell phone on it. Fold it up. Hand it to me or Dan on the way out. We truly do want to know where you are with the Lord and help you make that next step, whatever that looks like for you.